All right. Why don't you turn to 3 John? There's only one chapter. 3 John, right before the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. Third John, verse 9 and 10. The message entitled, Watch Out for Diotrephes. When uh, Madame Roland was being led through the streets of Paris to the guillotine and saw standing in the place de la Revolution, the Statue of Liberty, she uttered the famous declaration, quote, O liberty, liberty, what crimes are committed in thy name, of a more sacred name, an even more bitter address could be uttered. The name of the Savior of men has been used by so many to cover the most blasphemous of deeds. How true this is on every level, be it in the secular world or the church. At times, as individuals lead and are greedy, for gain or exercise power that's abusive, that benefits only themselves at the expense of the people. Nothing new. Ever since the day of the fall, it all began. Let's look at the atrophies, his sin, which is threefold here in Third John, verse 9 and 10. Let me read. I wrote to the church... But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to put in them out of the church. The sin of Diotrephes... It's threefold. First, the sin of Diotrephes was against Christ, the first portion of nine. Second, the sin of Diotrephes was against John, the rest of nine. And then the sin of Diotrephes was against the people, verse 10. The middle one straddles nine and ten, but those are the three. Let's begin here with the sin of Diotrephes was against Christ, because that's always the primary offense. Whether it be word and deed, we first sin against God, the vertical. Always. Then with the person, against the person, but it's always vertical first. Notice John said he, were, he had written to the church in verse 9. I wrote to the church. The letters were often written, as you know, to be read to the church body. Much like someone writes to the family, and they would read it, everybody sitting around the table. Now, we've lost that, but it used to be like that. Of course, there's personal letters that are just for the individual, but for the most part. The letters of Paul are a good example as he wrote to the Romans, he wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote to the Galatians, and they would read it to the church. In fact, they are addressed to the church, not to the pastor, not to the elder, not to anybody else, but the church at large. The letters often were written um, to meet a particular need. Um, things were going on. Lord is putting this church together. Gospel's going out. There's tension between Jew and Gentile. There are always those who want to be legalistic on the Jewish side. And then there are also those who want to make, take advantage of people on both sides. The Philippian letter was to teach them the example of Christ, the servant of all. And Epaphras an earthly model of joyous service. The epistle of the Colossians was written to combat the attack against the deity of Jesus and his sufficiency to save men. The book of Hebrews 
was written to encourage Hebrews not to return to the animal sacrifices under the law, but to abide in Christ. The book of Jude was written to exhort the believer to contend for the faith from those who had infiltrated into the church, and so on and so forth. So when you read a letter, you want to read it over and over again. It has this introduction, who it's addressed to, who wrote it, to who he's writing it. And then there's the body of the letter, and it'll divide up in sections, and then you have the conclusion or the closing benediction or blessing, depending on how it's written. But basically, it's much like a letter you would write. You introduce yourself, hi, John, I'm glad you're doing well, comma, boom, the body of the letter. And then you say, all right, well, I'll see you later on. God bless. Boom. Conclusion. So you have the introduction, the body, the conclusion. Now, John says, notice, that the atrophies love to have the preeminence in the church. The name Diotrephes means Zeus nursed or nourished. The word bud marks the sharp contrast between Diotrephes here and others. Don't miss that. Zeus was the chief god of the Greek pantheon. Perhaps he was a um, convert of the high aristocracy. We're not sure. But at this point in time, many Gentiles were already coming into the church. And as you know, through the book of Acts, we have the day of Pentecost, where many um, were added to the church. And then the Gentiles began to come in, uh, Samaria, the house of Cornelius, so on and so forth. The church, first church council made it clear that um, the Gentiles were not to be under the Jewish law, but all were one in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile, particularly the epistle to the Ephesians. Now, the man Diotrephes loved to be the center of attention in the church. We've all met people like that, whether it be Christian or relatives or whatever, that, or a kid, that, you know, they always want the attention, and, and a little goes a long ways. And it's very evident by everybody what's going on. The word preeminence um, simply means to desire to be found to be first. It's real simple. The word is made up of phileo, referring to being found of another, in this case self. And the other word means to be first or to hold the best place. Now, Jesus spoke much about the Pharisees wanting the chief seats, right? I'm always um, entertained when I see Christian television and I see um, the speaker and I see all the big doodads up here on their chairs all sitting and just applauding and amening and encouraging one another. It kind of reminds me of Pharisees and people are looking up to them, right? They love the attention. The name of Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. That's where the word phileo, fondness, affection, compatibility. The man Diotrephes was a proud and self-centered man then, as we can see. He's a sharp contrast to those that Christ commends and those that Paul the Apostle also commended. The man Diotrephes in reality was a contradiction to his master Christ. The word preeminence described only to one, one other time in the New Testament. The word is in relationship to Jesus Christ who has the preeminence over all things that he created, be they visible or invisible, and it's found in Colossians 1.18, the only other time it's found. One for Christ, for the best example. The other one for a bad example. We should learn from both of those. They're in sharp contrast. It was much like um, the disciples who were always arguing who was the greatest in the kingdom in Mark 10, Matthew 20. 
And then in John 13, the night before Jesus was betrayed, of all nights to be talking about that. This is the flesh at best. Whether it be a non-believer who is not born again and involved in church matters, which shouldn't be, but it happens all the time. Or a Christian who has been born again, but they're just carnal. They walk in their own desires, their own will. They're still trusting the flesh, their own goodness, their own manipulation, their personality. And now you and I know there's people that have incredible personalities. They're just the greatest people. But they get to be rats because they get to know how to use that personality, right? They get their way. Um, Women do the same with looks. It's the other side of the coin. And when you have looks and personality, ooh, that's a double-barrel shotgun. Okay? He exalted himself above the members as he walked among them. He's in the midst of them. He should have been serving them after the example of his master. Theotrophes was like the individual who in conversation, told his friend, you know, I'm tired of talking about me. What do you think about me? And there's people like that, and they they don't get it. It just, it's over their head. This guy's in the church. Jesus told his disciples to observe and do all that the Pharisees and scribes, but not to do according to their works, for they said, but they did not do, Matthew 23, 3. So what they said, what they taught, was absolutely good and right. But they weren't doers of it. In fact, Phariseeism is synonymous with hypocrisy. We get the word for acting. Remember the fear, the smile, and the frown mask. That gives you the idea. When a person acted, they put a mask before them in the Greek theater. Not one person ever thought they were really that person. Everybody in that audience knew there was another person behind it. The mask was just for entertainment. They laid heavy burdens on others, but did not move them themselves. Matthew 23, 4 says... They love to appear spiritual and seen of men. Matthew 23, 5 says. They love the best places at the feast and seats in the synagogue. Matthew 23, 6 says. They love to be addressed as rabbi. Matthew 23, 7 says. But the disciples were to recognize they were all brethren. Matthew In other words, the bottom line is, you're not better than anybody else. Don't be like them. Now, we understand we have different positions, different uh, roles to play. Uh, Husband, father, uncle, pastor, this, that, whatever. But none of that should ever exalt us above one or another And the only head that we follow is Jesus Christ. The word of God clearly declares that there is to be leadership, but not as being lords over God's heritage, but by being examples of the flock. 1 Peter 5, 3 says, this is the model of Christ. There is no other type of leadership in the Bible outside of servant leadership in Hebrews we are told to obey them that have the rule over us and to submit to them for they watch for our souls and are going to give an account to God this is um, stated very clearly and so they are to do it with joy and not with grief Hebrews thirteen seventeen says So there's an accountability, responsibility, there's a mutual respect and submission and leading, but it's in the, according to the scriptures and according to the example of Christ. 
No person is to submit to any leadership that goes beyond the scriptures, but only as far as the scriptures and in the context and the spirit that it's written in. Very important. Paul told Timothy that the elders that rule well are to be counted of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine in 1 Timothy 5.17. So he makes a distinction between regular leadership and those who are teaching. And Paul makes all these specific distinctions, and yet, after all the distinctions, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Different gifts, different callings, it's all by the grace of God. Paul exhorted the Thessalonians to recognize those who labor among them and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. So anybody who goes to a church should be able to look at the history of that church and the leadership and where did they come from and where are they at now? And does that give evidence of the hand of God? Not simply by numbers, but by character, by reputation, by what they say, by what they do. Whether they depend upon God or they just manipulate and use the people. All of this, every one of us is to examine. These types of men are wolves in sheep's clothing, the Pharisees, the scribes. But inward, the ravenous wolves. As Jesus warned the disciples in Matthew seven fifteen, they seek their own benefit. They use people. They love power. There's no greater example of abuse and love of power than a politician. No one more better example than they. They'll say whatever they want, whatever they need to say. And after a while, the people are so used to their lies that it doesn't bother them anymore. They're still for them. The sin of Diotrephes was against Christ first. It's very important to understand that. Secondly, the sin of Diotrephes was against John. Uh, the rest of nine, Diotrephes had refused to receive John and his company, does not receive us. He did not recognize John's authority. <clears throat> he exalted himself above John, causing divisions in the church. That happens automatically when you one person exalts themselves about another. Because that means something other will follow, as we'll see. It really contaminates others in their view of John. So as he is um, not recognizing John's authority, then he is actually contaminating the thoughts and the mind of others towards John. Because he's trying to protect himself in this power. This control that he has. He was showing disrespect to the fact that John was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. Now, that means nothing in and of itself. But you have to look at a person's life. What it's cost them. What they teach and if they live by it. All of that means a lot. There is nothing in Scripture that would lean us towards believing that John was not a doer of the Word of God. We have all the evidence of he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote Book of Revelation. He um, was cast away on the Patmos after being boiled in oil. And Jesus gave him the revelation. In this disrespect, he was giving place to the mind 
of some to think that John had deviated somehow from his past commitment to the church. Because you have to go, well, there must be something. And he doesn't give us any specifics, but you know how people are, right? People just assume and they start building upon it. I'm always amazed of what some people believe about me. Because they have believed others. Anytime anybody tells you something about me, if there's an inkling of a doubt, you come and ask me. And I will tell you, true or false. If you don't want to, then you deserve to live with the lie. It's all yours. Makes no difference to me. Definitely being a bad example, giving others the license to disrespect John themselves. He was uh, placing himself as an absolute authority over John. He was rejecting and separating himself from any partnership with John. Now remember, the sins first against Jesus. Because what he's doing is not true in terms against John and it's not right regarding Jesus. He ignored the indication of John to come to the church in the letter he wrote. He wrote to the church. This is previous to this. Okay? Notice the Apostle John would remember the deeds of Diotrephes then. Now, he's not bitter. He's not hostile. He's not, you know... A thin skin. John sees this of a great danger to the people, not to John. Sometimes I say things and um, point out things and people think that I don't like the person or the movement or the church or whatever. No, that's not the case. I love the people of God. Bad leaders are not going to hurt themselves. They don't abuse themselves. They hurt and abuse the people. That's why they're called false teachers and bad leaders. He ignored the indication of John. Notice that the Apostle John again remembers the deeds of the author. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. Not did, but does. They're continuous. It's ongoing. This was the conclusion of John in view of the actions of the autophies against them was to mark him indicated by the word therefore. It's a conclusive decision that he's come to based on facts and time. Remember, John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is for the protection of the church and for you and I to learn and to grow and to be wise. John is fully aware of the teaching of Jesus of loving your brethren, lest we attempt to accuse John of being unloving. Today you have to be real careful in the church because if you don't just believe love and grace then you're called critical, um, self-righteous, or a legalist. Love without doctrine is nauseating. It's dangerous. You must have doctrine you must know what you believe and why you believe it and that it's worth even dying for what you believe and not just under the guise of love, which is not God's love. God's love cannot stand without his word. It cannot endure without his word. It's impossible. John is called the apostle of love. And John the beloved in his writings. 
John is writing his first epistle focuses, in writing his first epistle, he focuses on the love of God and the fact that love is the evidence of being a Christian. So is John contradicting himself? Some would, who are tainted would look at John and say, oh, what a hypocrite he is. Do you guys see this very clearly? Real easy. As I said, after 42 years, I'm amazed at some of the things I've said that people say. <laughs> or that people say about me. You know how many times, how many people, how many people have come back and asked forgiveness or told me they were wrong out of 42 years? Two. Pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Am I saying I'm always right? No, I'm not saying that. We just aren't very gracious. We are proud. We are self-exalting. And we just hate to admit that we're wrong. And we want to obtain power anyway, every time, at all time. That's our flesh. It never goes away. Thirty-six times the word love appears in First John. Six times the word love uh, is found. Different forms of it. And four times the word loved appears. The apostle was not sure if he would um, come to the church, he says. Notice. If I come, he's praying. He's trying to deal with this. What's the best way to handle this? But if I don't come, I have to say something, right? Too many people are complicit with the sin by silence today. In the church, outside the church, in families, in the world. Mums is the word. Whether the initial rejection of them by Diotrephes was, had forced John to change his plans is not really told us here. Whether the Lord had redirected John, we are not told. The apostle would call to mind the deeds of Diotrephes, which he did. The deeds speak of that which Diotrephes had been occupied in opposing John. The believer is not to be naive. Christians are not to hold grudges. Christians are not to harbor bitterness. Christians are not to have resentment. Christians are not to be gullible and foolish by allowing people to take advantage of them or do them harm willfully. But we understand the flesh, so we have to guard ourselves, right? We're not foolish. We're Christians. We love the sinner, but we're not stupid. Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, not clumsy as ox. Matthew ten sixteen. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. That doesn't mean you don't speak out. It doesn't mean you don't confront. It means when you do it, you do it in God's love. You do it by God's word. And you do it. Simple. Notice the autophies was um, defaming John and those with him, prating against us with malicious word. The things the atrophies was doing was prating, which has the root word, which means to bubble up or to boil over. The idea of being full of hot air, false accusations. Now, we can do this a lot of different ways. We can just say, um, somebody say something about something, they go, oh, Really? 
That's all you have to say. They go, what do you mean? We've already planted something in their mind, right? Or they mention their name, you go, I haven't said a word, but you've said everything. Hmm. Nonsense and empty charges being false. The word in a different form is translated tattlers. In the King James, the old King James, gossips. In the new King James, regarding the women who had been swept up in the heresy at Ephesus in 1 Timothy 5.13. The intent of the autophys was with maliciousness, mark that well. It means evil, hurtful words. There is no good intent here. The motive is to damage John, to hurt John. So that he can be separated from the people and the atrophies can continue to use and manipulate and take advantage of the people. Are we clear on this? The word describes one who not only is evil and enjoying it, but making others evil. Poneros, it's used for Satan. You know what that means if you were in the world for any length of time and you partied. And you were partying and some guy said, well, I've never been drunk. Really? You're going to go get him drunk. You want to corrupt him and then you're going to laugh as he's throwing up all over the place. You enjoy making people evil. Or maybe have never experienced sex, so that goes on. And other things, right? And we laugh at it and make jokes and we get off on it. We feed on the evil in the natural man. The word is used for the nature of Satan, the wicked one, in 1 John 2, 13 and 14. Poneros. In 1752, a group of um, men, including John Wesley, who were nicknamed Methodists, signed the covenant which every man might hang on his study wall. The six articles of the solemn agreement follow. Listen carefully. That we will not listen or willfully or willingly inquire after ill concerning one another. Two. That if we do hear any ill of each other, we will not be forward to believe it. Whoa. Third, that as soon as possible, we will communicate what we hear by speaking or writing to the person concerned. Four, that until we have done this, we will not write or speak a syllable of it to any other person. Five, that neither we will mention it after we have done this to any other person. Sixth and last, that we will not make any exceptions to any of these rules unless we think ourselves absolutely obligated in conference. Wow. The Methodists, John Wesley, they're called Methodists because of their methodical discipline of studying the word of God, gathering in prayer and confessing their sins and visiting the orphans and the prisoners. That's where home Bible studies began, the Methodists. Way before that, way back in the New Testament, but looking at a period of time in history. There are always those individuals who are uh, cliquish in their leadership practices after the carnality of the Corinthians First Corinthians one twelve speaks. Uh, you guys are carnal. You have the divisions, everything else, right? They exclude everyone from having anything to do with their fellowship, which is wrong and unscriptural. They see something wrong with every church and fellowship, but their own church, and that's also wrong. It's a blind spot that we have. 
Now that doesn't mean that if such is the case and heresy has hit the church that you don't mention it. Okay? But certainly not thinking that you're the only one. I thank God for the godly men that are out there preaching the gospel. They're out there. I don't know where they're at because I, I'm here every Sunday and during the week I don't have time to go around. Okay? The scriptures are clear that if there is sin, false teaching, or unscriptural practices, then we are to be discerning and if need to be, remove ourselves from them. Acts 17.11, the Bereans, examine if those things are so. The negative side of love is to confront individuals as a mark of faithful love. Proverbs 27.6. Faithful to the wounds of a friend, deceitful the kiss of the enemy. Proverbs says also. God confronted Adam and Eve, did he not? And he said, who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you that you should not eat? Genesis 3.11. God comforted Cain. But before he comforted Cain with the offer of repentance, first he confronted him. Where is Abel, your brother? What have you done? Genesis 4, 9, and 10. God confronts us. He doesn't say, ah, it's okay, forget it. The practical wisdom regarding people's ill behavior is to mark them and respond with basic common sense. David, knowing that Ahithophel, his close companion and counselor, had sided with Absalom, prayed that God would turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness in 2 Samuel 15, 31. Paul knew the Jews wanted to kill him, so he refused to be tried in Jerusalem, so he appealed to Caesar in Acts 25, 11. So we don't give up common sense if God allows us to go that way. Yet we're trusting God at all times. The description that men can exert on others from a position of power is criminal and goes on every day. It happens in the arena of politics. It happens in the arena of the job market. It happens in the arena of ministry. But God help those who would use their position to slander, malign, for their own personal ends and purposes and satisfaction. But that happens all the time. I know personally people in churches that I don't know how God doesn't barbecue them. Just zap. And I always have to come back that God honors his word above his name. And that God is absolutely just. That's his business, not mine. So the sin of Diotrephes was against John, first vertical and horizontal. But notice thirdly, the sin of Diotrephes was against the people, ultimately. Diotrephes was not content with the fact that he himself did not receive the brethren, and not content with that, with that he himself does not receive the brethren. In other words, he was not satisfied with inflicting pain and suffering on John and his companions alone. It was only a necessary part of the evil. He inflicted pain and suffering on the brethren. These individuals had gone out to minister the gospel to the Gentiles and had not taken anything from them so as not to hinder the gospel, we're told in chapter 1 here. There's only one chapter, verse 7. The Apostle John was commending the witness of Gaius for his love for the brethren who had gone out to the Gentiles and strangers in verse 5 and 6. Theotrophy stands in complete contrast to these men. Again, the reason being because of the condition of the ends and reputation behind them. Many of the ends were house of prostitution, listed things went on. So when Christians travel, it was nice to take them into their home and 
give them a nice clean bed and some food and some fellowship apart from any moral things or temptations, right? The apostle exhorts Gaius that we ought to receive such individuals and become fellow workers for the truth in verse 8 of this little epistle. So as you examine, you read it over and over again, you can pick up exactly the sharp contrast. Notice Diotrephes was forbidding those who wish to receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to putting them out of the church. So he was lording over the people. He was attempting to stop them from doing what Jesus had commanded. He was bringing division to the church body for his own prideful and evil satisfaction. You need to control. But you have to disciple your evil disciples. So they protect you. They become your yes men. They do your ugly bidding for you. Wow. This is in the church. That John was talking about. He was assuming the position of Lord. Notice he was consequently putting them out of the church. Putting means to drive out, to expel. It's used of pulling the speck out of one's eye in Matthew 7, 4. It is used of the wheat cast into the sea when Paul was on the boat in Acts 27, 38. You see, the church is the called out people of God from the world as you know and sin to the kingdom of God. So we are called into the kingdom of light, turning our back on darkness. But when carnality reigns, it brings that darkness within the realm of the church. Everybody has that capacity. The people are the church, not the building, as you know. And the people are being cast out of the homes that the church were meeting in. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ, Acts 5.42 says. Paul says, to greet the church that is in Priscilla and Achilles house in Romans 16.5. Paul says the house of Chloe called his attention to divisions. Perhaps the church met in their homes in 1 Corinthians 1.11. And in closing, Paul calls attention to the house of Stephanas who had addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints in 1 Corinthians 16.15. Great people. So Paul has much to say about Faithful servants. Paul prays that the Lord give mercy unto the house of Nesiphorus, for the often refreshed him and was not ashamed of his chains in 2 Timothy 1.16. Paul greets the beloved Aphia and Archippus, fellow soldiers in the church in their home, Philemon 1.2. And so the individuals were attempting to be like the well-beloved Gaius, who was the recipient of the letter for his hospitality and love to the brethren and to strangers and suffering the price of excommunication. So as he's writing to Gaius, he brings this topic up. He commends Gaius. Gaius is sharp contrast to Diotrephes. The Apostle John commended Diotrephes. I'm sorry, condemned Diotrephes to Gaius, who without doubt is the bearer of the letter and testifies of his good report among the brethren. He didn't toot his own horn, but people acknowledged his love. We've all heard the saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. No one's exempt from this. Now, there's good dentists, there's bad dentists. You don't quit going to the dentist because you just happen to have a bad dentist the first time. What you do is you recognize a bad dentist and you go look for a good dentist. 
Okay? You don't stop eating because you go to a restaurant and you get some bad food. That's it. I ain't ever going to eat. Really. But we use that against church, right? Because you see some abuse by some pastors or some leaders. It's all around us, ladies and gentlemen. What you need to do is be a good Berean and check it out. And find a good one. You're going to look for a perfect one? Stop. Don't even look. You're never going to find them. But you mark the scriptures. Wicked leaders have no peace. They're not at rest in their hearts. There's no peace, says the Lord, to the wicked. Isaiah 48, 22. There have been evil men in the leadership of the church in the past, and there will be evil men in the present, as well as the future. The Lord tarries. Listen to Proverbs 6, 12 through 15. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his finger. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken and without remedy. Ooh. By the way, that's a promise. When? That's God's business. Not mine. The deeds of a person who is divisive. The Lord hates. Listen to Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, number one on the list. Pride. Heart. Deceitful, desperately wicked. A proud look, a lying tongue, the beast behind the ivory cage. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. I can think a number of people that come in my mind right now, pastors through the years, who just destroy people. They go after them. It's amazing. They've lost the fear of God. Somebody leaves here, I pray for them. I don't go after them. I don't care what they say about me. What am I going to do? God takes care of all those things. The unity of brethren is pleasing to the Lord. Listen to Psalm 133, 1 through 6. 1 through 3. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head um, of Aaron, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garment. It is like the dew of Hermon. It's descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There's nothing more appealing than to see a group of people who are sinners, saved by the grace of God, growing, developing, and maturing. All having the worst of all capacity for evil, yet walking in the Spirit, doing all they can to allow Christ to live through them. And that when they do blow it one way or the other, they're the first to say, I am so sorry. I made a mistake. I blew it. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Or even when your words are right or my words are right, if my attitude is wrong, then I make sure I make that point. You know what I told you is absolutely right. I don't take that back. But let me tell you, I am so sorry. Forgive me for my attitude. My attitude was absolutely wrong. It stunk. It's done. It's taken care of. That's how we're to be known, by our love. By our love means that we're able to humble ourselves before others to admit when we're wrong and to keep our accounts short and to look to the Lord Jesus and to make sure that we keep everything that would hinder my life or yours so that God can work and move in the midst of us, ladies and gentlemen. There's to be no personal gain in the matter. 
None whatsoever. Nothing here belongs to me. Everything we have because God's so good. It's all it is. And so, I think we should learn from Diotrephes. The sin of Diotrephes was against the people ultimately, right? Starts with God, goes to a specific person, the goal is the people. Nothing new under the sun. So next time you read this little epistle again, remember Diotrephes and his threefold sin. The sin of Diotrephes was against Christ, second against John, and third against the people. He's writing under the inspiration. He's writing to instruct the church for all the generations to come to the Lord returns. And so, don't throw it away. Don't waste it. One great little chapter. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We praise you. We worship you. We thank you for this morning. And we pray, Lord, you would deal with our hearts constantly. We thank you for your protection through the years. We thank you for your mercy, your sufficiency to keep us on track and to allow ourselves to humble ourselves and to admit when we're wrong. And to desire your will and the protection of your people, Lord. We pray we would abide in you. We would look to you always. And that each of us here would be servants of all. We love you, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you, uh, you fit the atrophy's um, personality here and his lifestyle and you don't know Christ, then you need to repent. Realizing that God loves you, he died for your sins. Or you may be in a whole different life from the atrophies, but still not born again. The Bible says unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So God has brought you here to repent of your sins. Maybe over the internet, you're watching. A prayer repents what he requires. If you desire to be born again and forgiven, this is your prayer to him. You can say it right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.